Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hanson. Good morning, Yuma. Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law. I am Sean Garner, an attorney with Deason, Garner, and Hanson. I'm in studio here with Adam Hanson, my partner-in-law, and uh, Cody Beeson, who is running the boards and making us sound good. This morning, we have an exciting show for you. Today, we're going to talk about a proposal on federal ban for gas stoves and other gas appliances. So um, nothing you like more on a Monday morning to hear about than the federal government uh, digging more into your personal business and into your household uh, habits. Well, you know what? I appreciate you explaining this because I've seen memes. I've seen people talk about the stoves and all that. I didn't dive into it, Sean. So w- what is all this new gas stuff about? Because you're, you're going to explain what we've been seeing, right? So, of course, any opportunity that uh, right now the narrative on the left gets to indicate that the burning of fossil fuels, natural gas, oil, uh, coal, that we that gets involved in our day-to-day activity, any time that they can, they can reduce that, and uh, infringe upon what we can do and think upon for ourselves, they will. And so now we've already imposed the um, reduction. And what's interesting is it was in the the Inflation Reduction Act, but is the reduction of the use of fossil fuels in certain appliances like cooking and and, uh, gas-fired stoves. So they're attempting to direct your day-to-day choices and activity to fit the narrative that if we don't do exactly what they say, then the oceans will boil and the ice caps will melt, all the polar bears will die off, and we'll be extinct. Um, There's not a lot of extrinsic evidence for that, but it doesn't matter. Um, We only follow the science when the very specific arm of science supports the narrative. When it doesn't support the narrative or when there's not enough statistics, we'll make them up or we'll just use a scare tactic and, and, and go off the emotional effect. And that seems to be what's happening here. For example, think about this. If we were to ban gas stoves and, and, and the narrative on the gas stoves is not only is it burning a fossil fuel to turn on a gas stove because that's natural gas, then um, that's bad in itself because all you have to do is include fossil fuel into the sentence and you're already behind it right there and then um, they go into well it's it's bad because of the pollutants inside the house there's going to be carbon dioxide in the house there's going to be carbon monoxide in the house for the unburned gas because there's no carbon monoxide for unburned gas if there is it's it's minuscule and then there's um, also methane and what they're saying is this, is this is bad for the kids. Think about the kids. We've got to save the kids. They're, 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 it's going to cause asthma. It, they could die in their sleep from a gas leak in the stove. Um, they could go up in flames because this is an open flame stove. And so we need to get rid of these gas stoves. Instead, we could have zero emission, clean electric stoves. And all you got to do is plug them in, and it heats up magically without burning any fossil fuels. And that, that sounds brilliant. Why, why haven't we thought of this earlier? I mean, at your house, but fossil fuels are being consumed somewhere else, at the power plant or, or somewhere in the line. Yeah, and, and 
you go on YouTube and, and there's a lot of these little walkthroughs where individuals go through. Brian Crowder is one of them. He goes through and he says, hey, um, when you plug your car in and charge it, where does the electricity come from? Well, it comes from the building that we're, we're plugging into. Yes, yes, but where does that building get it? And, and most people can't answer that question. Is it coming from coal? Is it coming from the burning of oil? Is it coming from the burning of natural gas? Where is the electricity being generated from? Is it coming from solar panels or wind? Is it coming from thermo, um, geothermal electricity or nuclear? And very, very few, if any, can answer that question. And the reality is, it, if we're being generous, only about 10% is coming from what we call renewable resources. And that is solar panels, wind, geothermal and things like that. Now you call those renewable, although the appliances, the solar panels and the, the blades for the windmills, those aren't necessarily renewable. Those we need to break down and, and, and they're, they're technically hazardous waste once they're used up and their lifespan is only about 25 years. Yet that's the terminology. So, um, when we plug in any time, we're using 90% fossil fuels. A lot of it is coal. The other portion is natural gas and oil that's being burned to generate this electricity. And then we've got nuclear, which nuclear truly is very green. Um, so, Adam, I want you to chime in on this. When, when you think of the federal government reaching in and saying, you've got to use now an electric stove because you're building a house right now. And you're designing that house, and, and, and your wife is a professional baker. She, uh, her business is Sweets by Jess. Sweet Cakes by Jess. And uh, so she bakes professionally. What does she prefer, electric or gas? She likes gas, and I'm trying to get her to move to electric because I think, personally, I think electric is a lot more predictable. So in our current stove, it's actually a propane stove because we're out in the boonies. So we have propane tanks that feed into our house. And in order to use that stove, I bought the stove at Home Depot. And when I went, when I went to go buy the stove, I had to make sure that it was a, a convertible stove. So it came with a conversion kit. And uh, basically what you do is you remove the nozzles that it comes with that typical natural gas uses in a, in a typical house, like in the city limits, mm -hmm. they'll use natural gas. So you buy your stove, your gas stove over at, at Home Depot or Lowe's, and you bring it home, you plop it in, hook it up to the gas, you're good to go. With propane, the, the nozzles, the, the ends of them, they're a little bit narrower or, or, or smaller, it looks like, the diameter of the hole for the gas to come out of. And so it comes with a, some of them come with a conversion kit, but you have to be careful about that because some of them don't. You have to see when you're buying a stove or an oven, does this have the ability to do propane? And so when I find, found the stove that we liked, we get it home, we hooked it up, I did the conversion kit, you swap out these no, the, the heads of the nozzles and things like that, and then, uh, yeah, it worked. It worked like a charm. What I find is that there's unevenness when we bake things in the oven, so I would prefer electric. I know we're talking about everybody's going to electric and the government's mm -hmm. going to mandate that. I, I would prefer electric just because I've seen in, from experience that electric tends to be a lot more predictable, especially when you're cooking um, in the oven or whatever. My wife really likes gas because that's um, kind of old school and reliable and she feels like it gets hotter if you need it to be hotter. But uh, we're working on that. She's experienced electric as well. 
Um, when we were traveling to Europe, we did like macaron class and stuff in Paris, and they use tabletop electric ovens with, that can fit full-size cookie sheets. And she was really impressed by that. And so she's kind of moving over. When you were talking before about the government getting involved in regulating this type of a move to only electric, the first thought that came to my mind was an old kid's book. I don't know if you've read this, Sean. If you give a mouse a cookie. Uh-huh. And uh, in that book, there's a mouse and, and he lives in this house and the, the residents of the house start giving him stuff. And they give him a cookie, you know, and then he wants milk to go with his cookie. And then he wants this. And by the end of the story, he's basically taken over the house. And that's the that's the analogy that I would like to make to the government. And it, it goes back to the COVID stuff that we saw in the early months of um, 2020, where the argument is, well, the government knows best and they're looking out for our well-being and, and they have all the answers. They know science, they have all these experts and they, they get to tell us or dictate to us, hey, that's bad for you and this is good for you. Um, whether it's your gen- gender or it's a, a sickness that comes to the United States in some form or fashion or it's natural gas versus electric or it's energy um, coming from solar panels. They know better than we do, and therefore, we ought to trust them. And we saw, I thought, a good testing ground during the COVID outbreak of how much the government actually knows. And it's very little. You had, you had these experts telling us, you've got to quarantine, you've got to, you've got to limit the spread, and it goes on and on and on. And in reality, looking back now, we're, what, two, three years down the road, and most of what we were told was wrong. It was horrible advice. And we all had that sense when we were in it, I believe. I mean, to be locked down into your house against uh, your natural ability to go outside or go to the grocery store is just, I think we had it inside of us. Something's not right here, but the government knows best, so we're going to do what they say. I think uh, we've become too reliant on the government to the extent that we trust them to tell us what's good for us and what's bad for us. And therefore they're going to regulate our lives in order to, uh, dictate to us what we ought to use to cook in our kitchen, how we need to spend our, our time, our free time, what we can and we cannot do, what guns we can possess, what guns we can't possess, if we can possess a gun at all, uh, whether it, it goes down to even our cars, Sean, you drive an electric hybrid car and uh, there's so many regulations on just that facet of, of uh, your daily life going from here to your house and uh, the chargers that they have to be used the batteries and that can be used and cannot be used because of explosions that have happened in the past so the government is just in, entwined in our lives I would like to see a world or a government that isn't so ingrained in my daily life to the extent that I can make a decision based on experience, not only my experience, but the experiences of others. Sean, you drive this car and you say, Adam, this is a piece of junk. Like I, if I had a, a do-over, I would not buy this car. It's unreliable. It barely you know, gets the gas mileage it is supposed to be getting. I, don't, I would not recommend it. Okay, because I trust you, I'm going to take that and I'm not going to buy that car. I'm going to try something else. So we learn through experiences of others how the market reacts. And I think if, if we already have a mechanism in place to actually weed out the bad products or the, the bad things in our lives. For example, if I buy a stove 
and I trust this manufacturer. Let's say it's a GE. I buy a GE stove from Home Depot. I get it home. I hook it up, and it sets on fire and burns down my house. That's a horrible, horrible thing, and I'm going to let people know. I'm probably going to sue GE for a faulty product. And lo and behold, other people around the country had this same GE stove, and it, it combusted spontaneously in their house. So what's the remedy there? It's a lawsuit. You're going to do a lawsuit. You're going to sue GE for a faulty product, and I'm going to get a, an award according to what the jury or the judge feels like I'm entitled to. I'm going to be made whole and even more so in most cases. So we already have a judicial system set up to weed out the bad products. It might take time and effort, but that's what the design is for. Not only that, but we have a public market or capitalism system that tends to work. When I go on Amazon and I'm looking for a product, the first thing I do is I look at the reviews of others. And you'll see those reviews that are probably paid reviews because, they, oh, this is the greatest product I've ever seen in my life. And then once you get down and you start going through the weeds, you, you see honest reviews. Well, it worked for three months and then it died. Or... Um, I don't know what everybody else is talking on here about because I got this product and it was a piece of junk. So I go through those reviews and I, I, I judge my buying power or what products I'm going to buy on experiences of others. I think the natural market tends to weed out bad products and bad experiences. And that's what, it, that's what freedom does. But when you have a government come in and say, oh, no, 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 you don't even have a chance to have a gas, gas oven because gas is bad and you need to go to electric, all electric, you know, because that's good. Well, I tend to like to try for myself what's good or what's bad. Yeah, we got to take a break, but we're going to come back and talk about the efficiency of government regulated market as opposed to a free market. So this is Life, Death and Law, 560 AM KBLU. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death and the Law, right here after this. Hey, you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back, Yuma. This is Life, Death, and the Law, 560 AM. I'm Sean Garner, attorney with Deason, Garner, and Hanson, and we are talking about our favorite subject, government regulations. We've got some more regulations that are being proposed, and those regulations involve uh, what we cook with, whether it's gas or electric. Now, there's a lot of controversial or maybe contradicting is a better word for it, studies out there that suggest that electric is a more efficient way to cook as opposed to gas. I've got a study up here that was from 2013 that says that uh, 
that gas is 40% more efficient a way to cook. Now, not all, it, it doesn't transfer the heat to the, the cooking pot or to the food as efficiently as electric or induction cooking. Induction is a new way of cooking, which we'll explain a little bit later uh, if we have time. But uh, gas, it loses about 40% of the heat when it comes from the flame to the pot and to the food. However, you're not actually having to convert it into electricity from gas or coal to get it into the coils of the the stovetop in order to heat up the food. And so there's a lot of um, energy lost in that whole process. Plus, when you cook with gas, I've got one study that came out that's from uh, the Sierra Club and some of these proponents of eliminating or having federal regulations on gas stoves and other gas appliances in the home that says that it is more expensive to use gas appliances. Yet I've got a 2013 that before this became majorly politicized that says the complete opposite. That says on average a person will use about $13 if they cook on a single, they're just um, comparing it to a single plate of uh, stovetop electric uh, coil cooking and uh, compared to a flame cooking with natural gas. And they say on average, natural gas will cost about $6.50 per year. And that electric coil will cost you about $15 per year. So we're talking less than half with natural gas. So what the government wants to come in with is subsidies to help subsidize not only changing out the appliances from natural gas to electric, but also subsidizing the use of electric. And ironically, what's going on here is those subsidies come into the um, Inflation Reduction Act. So I don't know what the government pouring more money into the economy to pay us to buy different products and infusing more cash into the system, how that actually reduces the inflation. But that is what is actually in the Inflation Reduction Act. It's, it's, it's mostly the Green Movement, and so it should have been called the Green Movement Act. But that's what it, what's going on right now, and they're proposing to subsidize between $300 and $800 if you change out your stove from electric to a gas stove. And then they're saying, well, so here's your incentive, and if you don't do it, well, then any new builds, you cannot build with a gas stove. And in fact, in California, they just voted unanimously in uh, August that by the end of 2023, there can be no more building new builds with permits for gas stoves. So you don't even get a choice. In the whole state. Well, no, that's only for actually the county of Los Angeles. Oh, okay. Well, mm-hmm. still, I mean, that's the biggest biggest market in California. Right. So what are some of the arguments for that? One of the arguments is that, uh, hey, it's, it's hazardous to have this gas burning in your house. Um, you've got all of these byproducts. You've got carbon dioxide in there. If the gas isn't burning completely, you've got carbon monoxide, which is, is poisonous. Carbon dioxide isn't poisonous and low doses to humans and it's actually food for plants but it's going to cause that greenhouse effect and then you've got uh, methane that it's producing that has a greenhouse effect so really we're looking at the greenhouse effect that's being produced by these gas stoves and other gas appliances like water heaters and dryers Um, i know that my wife prefers a gas dryer 
I really don't know the difference between gas and electric on dryers, but she says that a gas dryer will dry the clothes a lot quicker. So if she's going to go and do some laundry, she can get through the process a lot quicker when she's got a gas dryer. And we know for from personal experience that we've we've been through this process when it comes to washers. I don't know how far back it was, but I, I, I feel like it's been about 10 to 15 years that regulations went through as to um, the amount of water that a washer would put out when you're doing a load of laundry. And so there was, there was put in these uh, microchips into washers that would regulate that water. And there were a lot of workarounds that if you get on YouTube, you could figure out how to get more water into your washer because a lot of people, when they were getting their clothes out, they were smelling stale. And, and, and not really clean. And, and the easiest answer and solution to that is there's not enough water and they're washing all of the, the dirt and, you know, whatever else is in your clothes. I won't, won't get into specifics. <laughs> but the grime, the, the grime that you leave into your clothes. And so um, what people do is they, they figured out that it was these washers were based on the amount of weight of the laundry that you put in there, and that would determine how much water was released by the washer into the load. And so you, if you could get more weight into there, then you could get more water to actually get your clothes clean. And so they would fill a jug of water in with their laundry, and they would chuck it in there. And so they could get a little bit more water out of the machine to get their clothes cleaner. Or you could just go back about 15 years before those uh, regulations were implemented and buy a washer that didn't have those regulations and, and used enough water to get it clean. You can set your the load of laundry to small, medium, large to determine how much water goes into it, and you're getting charged a water bill for how much you use. So why does the government have to get in there and mandate how much water we use to wash our laundry? I think it comes back to the proper role of government. You always talk about this, Sean, you know, what the proper role of government is and getting back to these washers. I think the the date that comes to mind is, I think, 2010. When I'm looking for a washer, I'm, I want to be looking for a washer that's prior to 2010 in my mind. You and I, I think we both have the same washers and, and we found these on Craigslist. A lot of times you'll pick them up in California. Um, the, they're these old, the brand is Speed Queen. If you go to a laundromat, you'll see Speed Queens all over the place. Cody, you perked up. You like the yeah, Speed yeah. Queen? Yeah. So these are old school washers, but they run forever, run forever. And they, and they run really well. And they're just good old school, simple machines and not this newfangled stuff where you have to push these buttons, weigh stuff. It's got smart Bluetooth. Who, I, who cares? You know, like I don't need Bluetooth on my washer. I just need my clothes to be clean. And if I want Bluetooth, I can find some similar way to do that with a, a dongle. You love that word. Stop it. Stop it, Sean. It's nice <laughs> to be able to tell Alexa to it, turn the washer on, though. It is, yeah. Dong dongle is the official word for uh, a little device, that, device you that you plug into a computer or, or some type of appliance. Yeah, but every time I say the word dongle, Sean snickers. He thinks it's the funniest Well, thing. because you come up with double dongle and things like that. <laughs> when, when, you're, when you're using more, more than one of them. Okay, that's a good that's a good example. That's <laughs> you, what it is. You do it just to watch my reaction. So anyway, getting back to the Speed Queens, I mean, we love these machines, and uh, you can get them for a good price. And the best part about it is it doesn't have these regulations built into them. So you can, I could, 
I could theoretically turn off that float valve and I could just watch that water pour up and over my speed queen all over the place if I wanted to. It's my water. I can do what I want with my water, right? But I don't. I mean, I just wash normal clothes with it. But uh, the, the Because you're a rational, normal human being that doesn't just waste resources for the purpose of wasting it. You use them. And uh, that makes sense. I mean, we get charged for the amount of water that we use. We don't want to just waste it. Obviously, we know that we, were, we are in a drought um, because of the atmospheric rivers that have been coming through. We've been being helped quite a bit. Uh, Lake Shasta is up to nearly uh, 75% of historic norms, and it was down to 30% earlier this year. We've got Lake Oroville that is now at 100%. We've got Lake Mead that's going up quite a bit. We've got Lake Powell's going up quite a bit. The snowpacks in the mountains are up to 200% of, of historical norms, and so we've got a lot of um, spring runoff that's going to fill those back up. And that's not to say that we ought to just turn on our garden hose and let it run, but can we wash our clothes? Is, is that too much to ask to get our clothes totally clean? Um, here's a, another reason that they implemented these restrictions on water, because when you use water, if you're in the city and you don't have a septic tank, then the water goes back to a water treatment plant within the city that you're in. And... Uh, the water treatment plant takes a lot of electricity to treat that water. Eventually, the water is cleaner than it was when you firstly, first took it into the system from the river, and it's released back out into the river. In fact, if you go back, um, you go down to the West Wetlands, down to the first point of the West Wetlands, there's this huge pipe that um, is opening up every five to ten minutes, and tons and tons of water is flowing out of that pipe back into the uh, Colorado River. And that pipe is not very far from the city's water treatment plant. And the water doesn't smell bad. It's clean. There's no signs around that saying that it's, that it's, it's dangerous to drink. And um, the reality is it's cleaner than the water that we pumped in originally. And all the cities are doing this. If they're not reusing it into something like uh, agriculture or Maricopa, they pump a lot of their water down to um, cool the fueling rods at the nuclear energy facility there in um, just off of uh, Gila Bend. And so we're using this water, but there's electric electricity involved in cleaning the water. So if we want to reduce the electricity, hence, and where does electricity come from? The burning of fossil fuels. So if we want to reduce the fossil fuel footprint, then we'd reduce the amount of water. But there are other ways to do it. Somerton, for example, um, about 15 years ago, they implemented a system where they, they, they went full solar for their water treatment plant. They haven't been using any electricity for their water treatment for 15 years. That is, that is one area where I think solar is a fantastic use. They had plenty of land to use. It wasn't being used for other stuff. It, they didn't have to clear off a lot of endangered species and, and, and change the environment right there. And so they went solar and now their water treatment plant is 100% a renewable energy. Well, until the solar panels run out, but theoretically renewable. So their water that comes into Summerton is just as clean going out without any uh, carbon footprint. So let's let, let us wash our clothes and get them totally clean. The same thing could be said for gas stoves and uh, gas water heaters. So you mentioned that we're in the process of building our house. We haven't even started building yet because the prices were so high. We're waiting for those to kind of level out or come down. But what we are doing is we're finalizing our plans. 
we are out in the county, and so I think the regulations I would I would argue are probably l- less strict than when what they are in the city. We don't have to tie into a public sewer system because we're out in the county. So what that means is that we have a septic tank. Getting back to the water issue, Sean, the first thing that I asked the planner that's putting together our plans was: Is there a way to split out the water that we're using? because we already are using a septic tank. And if anybody's listening that has, has a septic tank and you've had to pump one of those, it's, it costs a pretty penny to pump the septic tank. And you have to do that every, uh, let's say, 10 years, you know, hopefully, if you're, if you're not just dumping tons of stuff into your septic. But the idea of pumping it wasn't very exciting to me. We've had to do that. And it costs a little bit of money. I think it was like 3,500 bucks, 4,000 bucks, something like that to pump the septic unit. Mm-hmm. So when I sat down with the planner, my wife and I we were going through and I, the first question I asked him was, is there a way that we can split out the water? Because most septic units are, are treated like your public sewer systems. If you're living in city limits, which means not only are my toilets going into my septic, but so are my kitchen sink, my kitchen sink, sort of the showers. So you have all this water going in there, but in reality, most of that water could be used somewhere else, like the washing machine. So if you've ever driven an RV or a fifth wheel or something like that, and you've got an, uh, you've got a, a little bathroom in that, there'll be a tank that's mounted to the bottom of that unit and you've got black water and you've got gray water. So one of those RV uh, examples is good because it shows us that we can use sink water. It goes this way. And then you've got black water. In other words, just your toilets go this way. And so I asked the planner, can we split out just the toilets going into the septic and then all the other stuff? I want to divert that. And I want to, I want it to go into my yard. So any of the other water that's flowing through my pipes can just go pour out right onto my lawn or into the garden area. And we don't have to have that going into the septic needlessly. Cause in my mind, it's just, it's a waste of septic space to put non-septic type stuff in it, you know? And uh, he said, absolutely, that's within the regulations. You can do that in the county. And see, I think these are wonderful market opportunities for individuals to implement devices that make that easy and then to educate the public as to how we can do this to make our lawns greener and reduce the amount of water that we waste or the electricity that we waste treating that water. we got to take a break. This is 560 AM KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law right here after this. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back, Yuma. This is 560 AM KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. I'm Sean Garner in studio here with Adam Hanson talking about regulations on your house appliances. We were already looking at regulations on uh, what types of cars can be sold, and uh, what it gets down to is the government choosing winners and losers in the market. Because when the government determines what type of car you're going to drive, whether it's battery or whether it's gas-powered or whether it's diesel, it's going to determine also what type of rebates or incentives it gives to the companies that produce those cars and what type of rebates the consumers get and what cars they can buy, which this is something I don't understand at all. So they say uh, you you get a $7,500 rebate if you purchase a battery-powered car, but you gotta go on a list 
and determine because they're only going to give so many rebates per company per car. So if all the Teslas are purchased before I get on there and, and am able to purchase one and all those rebates are used up, I can no longer purchase a Tesla. So I go down the list and I say, okay, what's the next one I want to buy? Okay, there's this um, Toyota Hybrid. Oh, okay, all of those are already gone. So now I go down on the list again and, and it keeps pushing me down further and further on the list, making me buy the type of vehicle that I wouldn't naturally buy anyways. And there's probably a reason why that vehicle hasn't been purchased and all the quote have been used up on those incentives. And that's because nobody wants that car, right? It's not been tested. It's not been proved. It's maybe not efficient. Not uh, It doesn't have a good track record and breaks down. So if, if the government truly wants just this clean energy and 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 they're convinced that a battery-powered vehicle is going to produce it let us buy a battery-powered vehicle from whatever company does it the best and let us determine who does it the best because we're going to vote with our wallets we're going to determine by how much money we spend on the vehicle to determine if it's better for us or not we don't need some bureaucrat at the top of government determining which vehicle we need to buy Jumping back into gas stoves, um, in California, this is a big movement because they believe that it's going to reduce smog, that it's going to be uh, healthier in the home, that it's going to reduce the carbon footprint and reduce the um, speed at which we are spiraling towards boiling oceans and melting ice caps, and this our, our Earth just essentially becoming uninhabitable because of climate change. And uh, gas stoves are going to kick... That, that, that that's going to do it for us, I guess. That's so, the straw. That's the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and, and looking at it, it, apparently all gas appliances, both commercial and private in California, make up 5% of greenhouse gas emissions. And so if we got rid of all of them, gas water heaters, gas heaters in general, so furnaces, um, gas stoves, gas dryers, if we got rid of all of those, we could reduce California's carbon footprint by 5%. Now, you take that a little bit further. If we were to get rid of all of America's carbon emissions, then we could reduce the world's carbon footprint by somewhere between 13 and 20%. And if we did that for 100 years we could essentially reduce, based on the calculations, and, and the graphs have never been correct, but based on the graphs that are being put out right now that are allegedly accepted by 90% of the scientists, we could reduce or at least prevent the warming of the earth by um, 2 degrees in 100 years if we got rid of all of America's carbon emissions. So... <laughs> I don't know if that's worth uh, turning over all of our national sovereignty and all of our defense and any of our ability to be autonomous to other actors in the world that are not willing to give up fossil fuels and produce their own energy and use energy to um, have a high-quality standard of living to do that. But that is the actual outcome. That's what the charts say, that if we, if we got rid of every bit of um, carbon emissions for the next hundred years, we could essentially lessen the temperature from increasing by two degrees. And that right now the oceans are rising at a level of about a centimeter and a half to two centimeters a year. Um, I don't know if that is catastrophic. We're, we're pretty adaptable as human beings. We're 
we're able to cope with things. Now, if, it, if it's rising a meter a year, now that's something that we really got to address quickly, and I still think we could adapt to it if we, if we address that problem head on. But um, between a centimeter and a centimeter and a half a year, and that, that's actually taking the most aggressive chart, saying we're in this um, what they call a hockey stick curve of warming and the raising of the oceans. If you take out that the, that theory of the hockey stick, meaning it's going gradually for a long period of time, and then it sharply turns upward and as far as the warming level of the earth and therefore the rising of the sea levels. If you take that out and you say, okay, well, well what have we averaged over time and we can measure this back thousands of years, then we're actually only increasing of about um, two centimeters per every 10 years. That's the average. We're only, this is based on the hockey stick curve a- analogy that it's a one to two centimeters per year. So all this to get back to, is this worth allowing the government inside our home to determine what type of appliances that we use? Now, me personally, I use a tankless water heater. Now, tankless water heaters, can. there's two versions. There's gas and there's electric. Now, gas is extremely efficient because when I turn on my faucet, I don't have the... um, circulating hot water throughout my house and my shower is on the far side of of the house from the water heater but it only takes about probably 30 seconds for that water to be hot coming out of the nozzle and if that water's cold coming out of the nozzle i'm not getting in it so the water is going to be running longer and i'm going to be wasting water and uh, the, that gas tankless water heater fires up that water hot really quickly so if the federal government had its way then I wouldn't be able to heat up my water with gas, and so I'm going to have to do it electric. And generally, if you're doing it electric, you want to have some hot water in reserve, which means a water tank. That's what a lot of houses have. That's what we've done traditionally. You've got this 40-gallon water tank that you're constantly keeping hot per any event that you want to turn on the water and have some hot water and not have the electricity heated up. But I'm not heating any water until I actually turn on the tap. It turns on, turns up that flame, and boom, I've got hot water. So to me, the efficiency level, I can just look at it, and I can say, I know that I'm using a lot less water, and I know that I'm using a lot less uh, natural resources, including what would be used to create electricity by using that tankless water heater. I loved what you said a couple shows ago. You, you, you asked the question, what do you think about when you hear the word greenhouse? Is that negative or is that positive? And we know that the government uses this word as a, a derogative word, greenhouse gases. But in reality, greenhouse gases, they go up and they tend to come back down and hang out, right, and keep the, the earth warm, um, like you mentioned before a couple, a couple shows ago, Sean. And why is that a bad thing? Maybe... Maybe the ice caps are melting a little bit. You gave us the the statistics there. But in reality, a greenhouse tends to thrive when done right, and it needs some warmth. And so you made the the comment that if the earth were warmer, then actually our foliage would thrive more. It needs more of that little warmth to grow, to release more uh, carbon dioxide into the air, which then it even grows more because it it's t- it starts to consume the carbon dioxide around it and then it releases oxygen which is more for us to breathe so it's this constant cycle so warming of the earth why would that be a bad thing there's a lot of people out there 
that um, have worked in climatology for a long time. And they have done studies that determine what the effect of greenhouse gas is on our environment in general. And these people have been shut down, they've been silenced, they've been canceled because it doesn't go along with the narrative. What their theory is, and, and, and they've put a lot of evidence to back this theory, and these are individuals that are very highly respected in their field. They've published over 200 papers. Each one of these individuals that I'm going to name here have published over 200 peer-reviewed papers that have looked at their studies and been able to give feedback on the accuracy and the legitimacy of their studies. And so um, William Happer is one of him of one of them. He is a uh, Princeton professor. He worked in um, the Clinton administration, and uh, he worked as a climatologist and in the energy department department for the Clinton administration. He also worked in uh, the most recently Trump administration for the same reasons. And his ultimate conclusion was carbon dioxide is very good for plant life. And in the past, we've had levels up to three, four hundred or four thousand parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And that's where plants were really thriving. Optimally, we will have about a thousand parts per million without significant warming in the atmosphere. And that'll allow plants to thrive and the atmosphere to continue at the level as, as far as temperature, atmospheric temperatures, pretty static. And so it, it won't create a lot of change that we'll have to have significant adaptations to. We're always going to have to adapt to climate change. We're adapting right now when we use heat in our home. That's adapting to the climate that we're in when we're using air conditioning. The whole reason we're able to live in Yuma, Arizona is because we're able to adapt to the heat that is in Yuma, Arizona. And uh, what he's saying is we can adapt more easily than we can change the outside environment much more easily. And in fact, the environment tends to go back to homeostasis automatically, and it tends to, to put out and receive what it needs. And so when it needs more carbon dioxide, plants will die because it doesn't have enough. And then the plants, as they ferment and as they decompose, they produce carbon dioxide, and then that increases the carbon dioxide level in the atmosphere. And uh, we need about, like I said, a thousand parts per million to be at the optimal level. In fact, greenhouse owners generally purchase carbon dioxide in metal cylinders, and they pump that into their greenhouses so that it can have optimal levels for their plants to grow. What are we at right now? We are at just... It depends on, on what studies you look at, but just about 400 parts per million. So we're, we're lower than the optimal level. So we could actually use a little bit more carbon in the atmosphere. Now, I know just saying that, I'm, I'm, I'm a crazy conspiracy theorist, but these are based on these, on these papers. It's not just William Happer that's saying that. William Happer, who dedicated his life to climatology and the study of um, the atmospheric effect of carbon dioxide, but also um, we've got... Patrick Moore, who was a co-founder of Greenpeace and also a climatologist. And we've got uh, Michael Schellenberger, who is also very um, big and influential in Greenpeace and an environmentalist that says, what we're doing in curbing our use of fossil fuels has a much larger negative impact on everybody and then as a result, the environment in general, than 
the solution, which is to stop the use of fossil fuels. He said different people have different solutions, but almost all of them universally agree that uh, nuclear energy is a great option to go with. But if you're just burning clean fossil fuels, and a clean burning fossil fuel is natural gas, and that's what we're burning in our stoves is natural gas, and that is not only going to cook, for most professional cooks out there, I'm going to just put this blanket statement out there, they want to use a natural gas burning stove, or at least gas burning, whether it's propane gas or natural gas, because it's very, very um, reactive to turning up the heat, turning down the heat, and they can get the exact type of cook that they want on the food. And uh, the government getting into their business and determining how they cook is something that is not only irritating, but it, it, it... totally changes their ability to practice their profession as they've learned. That's all the time that we have for today. Remember, we've got live seminars that are coming up. They are February 9th and 10th. The the February 9th seminar is going to be at the Yuma Main Library at 10.30 a.m. And uh, the February 10th seminar is at the Foothills Library at uh, 2.30 p.m. So if you want to come in and ask questions, uh, we love skeptics. Come in, let us know what your questions are, and we're going to have a live question-answer series about what type of estate planning will help you avoid government involvement in your affairs if you become incapacitated and when you pass on your inheritance when you pass away to your children. This is 560 AM KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the law firm of Decent Garner, and Hanson at 928-783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. Hey, Yuma, Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com.